Welcome to a second series of the Game Changers podcast. We enjoyed ourselves so much in the first series, learning from Game Changers from Australia and all over the world about how to think about the model of school and what school means. We can't wait to learn some more about school and the direction in which we should be going. Let's go. Well, it's great to be with you again, Phil, and I'm really excited about this second series. We have an amazing lineup of uh, international and Australian game changers to share with our audience that no doubt are going to uh, be quite provocative in what they present in relation to learning models and how we can do learning very differently within schools today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we want to, we want to give a, a big thank you to all of the people involved in the first series of Game Changers, both the, the eight Game Changers themselves, um, our two producers, Samuel and Oliver, and, and all of the thousands and thousands of people who've been downloading and listening to episodes and giving us encouragement along the way. So, well, you encourage us, so here it is. Learning, Adriano, tell me about it. Well, it's interesting. Recently, I read an article from the United Nations field where they described the, the global scale and the pace of educational disruption because of uh, COVID-19 as being unparalleled. That across the world, over a billion students are now attending, uh, are not attending a physical campus, a school campus, with numbers obviously increasing every day. And education officials at every single level right now, in addition to parents, are attempting to keep students engaged and learning at home through a variety of modes. But what I'm seeing in the midst of all this fear, panic and the unknown are new channels of innovation, creativity and systematic transformation that is accelerating at an unprecedented level. School systems have now been forced to rethink conventional learning models. And rapidly, they're building, testing and piloting new structures to accommodate a completely different new reality. And I'm really excited about the, the passion that's coming from many individuals and many schools about what learning should look like in support of young people in the 22nd century. And it's such an exciting prospect. And yet, one of the, one, I think one of the, the, the challenges for us is to remember that what we imagine is the new is not necessarily always the new. It's a, a, a wonderful client of ours, um, Julie Gillick, who's finishing up after 20 years as the principal, uh, uh, the head of the Winifred West Schools in the beautiful Southern Highlands of New South Wales and um, doing some work with her at the moment. And, and there's a lovely uh, address that she gave to a graduating class of teachers from the University of Wollongong in 2001. And she talks about her first teaching appointment at the Garoke Consolidated School on the southern edge of the Little Desert in Victoria's Midwest. And she was teaching PE and uh, art and a whole bunch of different things. Um, and she's talking about an opportunity she had to prepare for and teach one of her very early lessons in PE for year seven. And the, uh, the, the head of the school, and there are only 110 students at the school at that time, observed one of these lessons and said to Julie, he was very pleased that control didn't seem to be an issue for her. But it, interestingly, in a 30 minute lesson, I would think you allowed a maximum of 10 minutes of action. For the other 20 minutes, you achieve perfectly behaved children listening to instructions or watching demonstrations. I think one of the enduring challenges for us, Adriano, always in education is to remember and that it's about the learning, 
not the teaching. Okay, so I want to explore that a little bit, but before we get into the actual um, possible ideas around what learning could look like, I think it's important that we, we kind of give it some frame of reference. And what I mean by that is what we learnt from Valerie Hannon in our very first series was so much of this ecosystem that now we're part of needs to be part of a learning paradigm. And recently I read a report from uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers and the report is that the workforce of the future, the competing forces shaping 2030. And I think it's important that we identify what these kind of mega trends are that are going to shape the future going forward, because that's going to have a massive influence of what learning could look like in response to those kind of growing needs. Now they identified a number of things. We're going to have serious demographic shifts. We're going to have rapid, uh, rapid urbanization. We're going to have shifts in global and economic power. And of course, resource scarcity and climate change seem to be the kind of tremendous forces that are reshaping our, our society. And to thrive, education and learning needs to be open to recasting its purpose of, of the schooling and learning. And we collectively need to shape our own destiny around the construct of adaptability being one of the key components of the future. And before I get you to jump in, I'll just read this quote here, Phil, from Blair Shepard, who's the global leader in strategy and leadership development person from PwC. And he said, what should we tell our children? That to stay ahead, you need to focus on your ability to continuously adapt, engage with others in that process, and most importantly, retain your core sense of identity and values. For students, it's not just about acquiring knowledge, but about how to learn. For the rest of us, we should remember that intellectual complacency is not our friend and that learning, not just the new things, but the new ways of thinking is a lifelong endeavour. So when I hear that, I believe that now is an opportunity for school leaders and educational sectors to better understand their, their potential futures and what then they might need to respond to that and then have obviously the courage to plan and best prepare young people to succeed in this very obvious new tomorrow that is continually emerging and it's not even emerging anymore, it's currently here. So a lot of this therefore is about narrative and timeline, isn't it? It's about understanding the context of where we are, where we've come from, where we are now and where we're going to. So, you know, being a history teacher, of course, that's where I'm gonna take a, a, a conversation always is to talk about context. And if we put in, if we put into that, not only the urging of, of major research bodies around the world, which are telling us about the needs our society will have in the future. But if we look also at the lived experience that we're having right now, and you know, what we're seeing right now in the middle of the COVID situation all around the world is that we've got people who are making happen in a matter of weeks, that which they have spent decades pondering and mm. thinking about how they might or might not respond to that. It's a classic example of how the volume, pace and intensity of change in our times uh, disrupts the normal steady flow of things. In those circumstances, what we're seeing is that we, we need to encourage people to look after themselves first and foremost. We need them to take their wellness seriously. We need them to structure their time and space properly. And that's about time management. It's about goal setting. It's about priorities. It's, making, it's about making decisions about what's important. Not perfectionism. It's about doing the stuff that matters. We need them 
to manage expectations about what learning might actually look like. And we'll come, we'll talk about the sort of thing, the, 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 the ideas of continuous learning that we've been developing in, conjunct, in conjunction with our listeners and our clients and our colleagues and our friends uh, a little bit later. And we'll talk about, the, and, and, and the fourth thing we need people to be talking about now is how to hold relationship together. So that's about the today. So there's the tomorrow, there's the today. What about the yesterday? Well, as we might have seen, you know, from, from the example that Julie told, there are, there are things that always challenge us in education to remember the, the balance between learning first, teaching second, between it's about the kids, it's not about us. But we also need to remember, and, you know, there's an interesting exchange I had with uh, uh, another one of our good friends, uh, Joseph Owen, who runs um, St Edmunds in, uh, in Canberra. And, and he was talking about... Uh, the need um, not to disrespect the past and not to look, for example, at, at learning as online versus offline or face-to-face versus virtual, but instead to recognise that there's a continuum of really good stuff that's been done in the past by really good people who are doing a great job right now and that as we move forward, we need to make choices not just about ourselves and our wellness, not just about our time and space and our time management, but about what the learning looks like and how we're going to hold relationships together in this new era that we're walking into. Okay, so I want to explore this restlessness that you talk about a little bit there, uh, Phil, a bit further. So we know now that we have to re-examine the purpose of, of schooling and learning for our times. And we need to do it based on facts and the best predictions about what that impact of that restlessness is going to be. And I, I, I appreciate that there are, there are people out there who uh, are saying, let's not abandon the really good stuff that works. And no one is suggesting that. And not for one minute would it move to an online scenario, uh, eliminate the value and the purpose and the desire to maintain really good uh, relationship formation in a face-to-face context that's often developed in those in those ways. But it's really time that we do now turn a spotlight onto learning, onto the why, the what and the how of what matters for this whole new world environment. So I want to I want to explore the notion that uh, around at the moment, if we are going to look back for a moment, we are part of a standardized education system. And my personal belief is that standardized education systems are creating the biggest dead end for our future generations. That in 10 years, everything that will be standardized will be automated by machines. And so what's the purpose then of a standardized humanity? Because you touched upon there the character elements of of individuals. And I love this this particular quote by the American educational historian, Diane um, Ravitich. Sometimes the most brilliant and intelligent minds do not shine in standardized tests because they do not have standardized minds. So let's talk about learning then. So in contrast to standardization, there's been a growing movement in schools around personalized learning. And and that is something that I've always been a really strong supporter of. So therefore the attention lies between the competing forces of personalization and standardization, where personalization is designing for an individual's changing needs, their unique talents and interests, while for mine, standardization is the engine for rapid growth, lower costs, and greater profits. So teaching and learning, the relationship between the teacher and the learner is uniquely personal and responsive 
to the many different ways that young people can become their best versions. So I want to maintain high standards for all students in our care, but for me, standardisation is not the same as high standards. Having high standards doesn't mean that we all reach it in the same way. So that's, that, that, that's a very, very interesting uh, 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 follow-on from, from what we've been talking about, which is about how to, how to find a way forward that is real rather than some falsely concocted bipolar argument between two extremes, which might look good in a debating room or might fuel an academic controversy in the publications of multiple papers where, you know, it's, it, it brings to mind sort of, you know, uh, uh, that, that phrase from Hamlet, but, that, you know, rightly to be great is not to deal with great things, but to find quarrel in a straw. In, in, what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to throw into the mix the way that our research has been looking at this whole issue of how you grow through a lifetime in the character and competencies that you need. Because you know, and, and, and our listeners will know, that's what I believe sincerely school's all about. School's all about how we equip students with the character and the competencies that they'll need on their lifelong journey towards this character, which we call the pathway to excellence, all right? So what is it that we're actually doing with the personal and the standard along the way? It's, there's a biblical story that, that, that comes to mind around this, which, which, which if, you, if, you, if you'll bear with me for a moment, is worth telling. And it's, it's about Jacob. Jacob is traveling through the desert. He's moving house. He's got not one wife, but two wives with him. So if there's anybody out there um, thinking about how bad it would be to move house, imagine it doing it with two spouses, two partners, an entire household full of children and so on, and you're walking in the desert with all your possessions going from one town to another. So Jacob gets to the end of the day, and I'm assuming he wants some peace of mind at this point. So he asks everybody else to go on ahead, and they do. And he's going down a ravine and walking up from the river and comes across another man. Now, we're not told who this man is. There are various implications about who it might be. But comes across a man, and the man won't give way to him. And so he starts to wrestle with that man and he wrestles through the afternoon and into the evening and into the night. And eventually as the dawn emerges, the man touches his hip and Jacob gets a dislocated hip. And then the story goes on from there. So what I really like about this story, and, and, and there are many people of different faith perspectives who can bring to it different elements of it, is that notion of wrestling and the way in which we can take a set of ideas and wrestle with what the right answer to those ideas might be without needing there to be a perfect answer and a perfect solution. And it enables us therefore to see that the purpose of an education is to prepare someone to wrestle through their lives with both what we call the mark of a person. And that's that inner sense of who I need to become with the measure of a person. And so, we can see that the purpose of schooling is not to prepare a checklist for people of things to know, things to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that prepare you for an ideal, but instead equip you to spend your life wrestling with what's required for you to find the best possible set of solutions along the way as you're building your future so you can learn continuously and unlearn the things that you don't need to know so that you can be a responsible citizen, so that you can help create teams and you can be a good person along the way. 
that to me speaks of what the object of learning in our times needs to be. Uh, I, I appreciate that um, this restlessness that we're, we're discussing here has a place in education and no doubt some of the greatest learning I've ever encountered personally has been in moments of struggle where, where real growth occurs. My challenge though with everything that's being said here at the moment is that we are, we are in a paradigm where we are still in a model that is about a one size fits all. And if I accept what you're saying, Phil, and wanting to take that further, I believe that I have witnessed and, and many others have shared that there are better modes of learning available to young people today where, where we invite them to be partners in their own learning in the most meaningful ways where they are not being simply spoken at, where they are required to just sit there and get filled with knowledge. And, and now that we're this, uh, that's why that for me, uh, th there needs to be a move away from this standardized approach of learning to one that is more highly personal, one that allows for a greater fostering of creativity and adaptability and original thinking and to tap into those human qualities to really flourish in moments of struggle and in moments of restlessness. So it's time for us to put away Aristotelian physics and physiology. And we don't talk about the humours anymore in medicine. So why would we still be thinking of children as empty vessels who need to be filled up as opposed to unique, precious individuals, human beings, each of whom has a voice and an agency and a, vo and, and a worth that is just as much as anybody else. And that it's about our role to help them develop a sense of belonging, to help them to fulfill their potential and to help them make good and wise choices about what, what, what's right in the world and, 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 and to follow the, the moral code that they develop along the way. And if that means that we have to change some of the mechanics of how learning works, well then so be it, bring it on. You know, um, it's really now time for teachers and, and school leaders to really consider how they're gonna alter their way of thinking about how our students learn and the environments in which we encourage this learning to actually take place. Um, for mine, you know, I don't really feel it's all that complicated. It just requires us I believe, to abandon the binary thinking around what learning is and to start to be open to doing learning very differently and schooling very differently. And I've written about this many, many times, Phil, and for mine, the future of education is what I've, the phrase I'm using is anytime, anywhere, whether it's on campus, online, in context or in country. We have to start considering the possibility of of abandoning what we once knew was comfortable and safe and consistent to being open up to the possibility that learning fundamentally is messy. And, and this social exchange that goes on with people and place and knowledge and skills and the application of those things uh, is messy. Nothing is linear around that. And, that, and, and life isn't a straight, straight line with, with this kind of standardised way of, of, of approaching things and hoping that everything fits in that. 
we're dealing with young people who are home to a life and we're dealing with dynamic teachers that are equally home to a life. And the, the, the more that we move towards uh, a, a learning paradigm where real ownership and application and transfer, transferability is, is part of that kind of learning approach, I feel we're going to be closer to tackling those kind of tremendous forces that are reshaping our society that I mentioned earlier. So let's, let's boil it down to a few simple things here and potentially allay some fears. Are schools important? Yes. They're social hubs for learning and connection. Are teachers important? Yes. They're the adults in the room who are guiding, mentoring, apprenticing children along the way. They're the experts in a learning process to equip, empower and enable students along the way. Is face-to-face important? Yes, very important. We need to be around people. We're, we're, we're social creatures. Uh, are our connections with people important? Yes. Is there important knowledge, skills, dispositions and learning habits that children should acquire along the way? Yes. All those sorts of things are important. What I'm hearing you say, Adriano, is that we need to question how learning works best to enable those things that have always been good school to occur. We need to ask the question about what are the models of learning that are going to work best for kids so that they can become adults who can thrive in their world. Now, it's increasingly becoming more and more obvious to to me, Phil, that the mission of childhood education can no longer be the generation of the standardised test data, but learning powered by the physical, mental health and emotional competency and well-being of every student and every teacher. And that to equip today's students to thrive in this kind of workplace of 2030 and this world of 2030, the society of 2030 and beyond, a whole new curriculum competency framework is needed. One that centres on foundational literacies, and I like to refer to that as ways of knowing. One that refers to capability skills, which I like to refer to it as ways of thinking, and underpinned strongly by a final one, and those character attributes, our way of being. Now, literacy and numeracy will continue to be the building blocks on which all learning rests, and that strong discipline knowledge still matters Not so that students can regurgitate facts, but because it's fundamental to deep understanding, to robust thinking skills, and to the ability to learn and transfer through application. But for mine, it's it's now a time where learning needs to to ramp it up, the spotlight on this idea of the human qualities, and really focus on that particular element of the emotional competency of of the young people in our care, of the the teachers who do dynamic work in, in these environments, and start realising that that humanness and those human skills are going to be the ones that are going to enable us to not only flourish, but really survive in this kind of uh, new world that we're in. And and are teachers doing this already? Well, you know, I I believe that there are many teachers that are. I I believe there are many teachers that are really committed to this space. But I also believe that that they are also working in, in a system that is particularly hardwired again, uh, around compliance, control, and risk aversion. And so 
the challenge for them is that they have to work within the restrictions or these kind of tight parameters that have been imposed upon them. But what I'm witnessing in, in particularly during this pandemic is the creative innovation of teachers who are remaining focused on the power of the face-to-face -face and that having relationships being central to, to, to their interaction with every young person in their care. I'm seeing teachers adapt really quickly and agilely to the use of technology and new systems and processes and platforms that they've that is totally uh, been foreign to them for quite some time. And they're getting on with it because they are remarkable people that understand what they are ultimately doing and that is helping young people be simply better than they were yesterday. And they've been on this quest of making young people feel healthy and happier the whole time. My suggestion though is that I think we need to turn the spotlight on making that the emphasis. Because I feel in some contexts, it hasn't necessarily been always the emphasis because we're being held to account by uh, this, res this restriction that many call it the nature of, the standardised nature of the way learning has been done. So if I put all of this together, again, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing on conversations that we've been having with people as a result of this, this project that we've been working on together um, and, 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 and that we've been having a lot of fun with. Um, but the hardest bit is, that comes when you've got a teacher who's doing the sorts of things that you're talking about there and they hear someone criticising the state of play and then they feel deep inside themselves that it's an attack on them. Mm. And it's really, really important to understand that what we're seeing around and about the place, particularly right now, is the need to attack the system, don't attack the teacher. Teachers don't need that. Um, you know, we've got people out there who are absolutely busting a gut right now to change the way in which things are happening. They are confronting all sorts of norms and, and routines and structures that, that have sort of held everything in place. And they're now having to go back to first principles to think about um, what's important and what really matters. It's really interesting watching teachers now answering questions on a daily basis of, of fundamentals, like how much time do I actually need to spend with my children so that they learn? How much time do we need to spend as a corporate group together? How much one-on-one -on -one interaction do I need to have with a child? How do I place their wellness and their psychological safety and their sense of belonging first, as opposed to almost treating it as something that you think about at the end when you've done the content in and around that? And and again, we, we're watching people who are going through the most remarkable social experiment where we don't particularly know what the answer is at the end, but we do know that there's some really good learning that's going on along the way. What do you think good learning looks like? Well, it's, it's, it's not that dissimilar to what I mentioned a moment ago, Phil, around those kind of three constructs of, of ways of knowing, ways of, of thinking and ways of being. And... And for mine, good learning is an opportunity where we invite, as I said earlier, young people into this position of greater ownership 
where they are true partners in determining what their learning looks like, where we create uh, an environment for, for deeper engagement of, of these students, where we create a classroom, for instance, where they don't feel like visitors in that room, where they feel safe uh, to be able to create, to experiment and to actually even fail. Because really good learning needs to be in that kind of space of that restlessness, where, where I'm exposed to really good knowledge and information so then I can play with that knowledge and information and, and test my thinking. And then ultimately, great learning looks like the transfer of that knowledge and those skills in some form of application in a real world context. Something that is relevant uh, to my time and, and to, to perhaps even my interests and, and my passions and where I'm going. Okay, so if we take that restlessness and we put it at the core of our being, that then says that we are not operating from a default mechanism which preserves the status quo, but instead we are looking to change the game all the time. If then we attach to that what you were saying earlier about any time, any place, we say that what we are trying to do is to learn continuously as opposed to non-continuously or in some sort of disembodied way. The third well, it's, thing not, it's, not, it's not a way where we, the, the notion of this continuous learning is, is, is ensuring that learning is on a continuum and, and it's done over a period of sustained period of time, as opposed to short, sharp, discrete things where it's once it's done, we now move on to the next one. We move on to the next one, that there's an interdependence between that learning. So it's learning that's transformational rather than transactional. The third Absolutely. thing, yeah, so the third thing I'm hearing you say is about learning well, so that we have to be well to learn as best as we possibly can. Yeah. What we're starting to do here, of course, we're starting to assemble the ingredients of our, our continuous learning toolkit that we put out um, uh, recently for, uh, uh, for schools and educators and learners all around the world in the middle of everything that was happening. We, we started thinking to ourselves, well, we, we don't need people to, uh, well, people don't need us to, to be assembling information on how to do online learning. What they really need to be thinking about is what comes next. What does it look yep. like after this? Because we're not going back to the same. No matter what we think, we're not going back to the same. Learning, learning shouldn't be, you know, yes, I appreciate that right now we're having lots of robust conversations around how to do learning during a pandemic. But the question has to be, with or without coronavirus, what is learning? And, and what is the learning that's gonna be required to help young people master meaningful competencies so that they can thrive going forward? So, they, so that you know, the focus is on these kind of human habits of success, like agency and adaptability and executive function, uh, and even what it simply means to be a good citizen. They're the type of things that we need to kind of really put the spotlight on and cultivate in a new learning paradigm. So that takes us to the next couple of elements of our, of our toolkit. So we're, cha we're changing the game, we're learning continuously, we're learning well. We have to learn to ask the right questions. What is it mm -hmm. that we're trying to achieve? And then we've got to map the journey ahead according to the answers that we're trying to put together. So we've got to start with the object of what we're trying to do in mind rather than the routines and structures that we've inherited that define what a physical space and the allocation of time might look like. We've then got to equip ourselves 
to do the right job. And, 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 and here's where we have to be strong around this sort of thing. We, we, we really need to see this as our responsibility, that if we're in there and we're doing our bit, then we need to equip ourselves with the resources that are going to help us to do this sort of thing. We can't turn around and say, look, just tell me what to do and I'll go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. Instead, we need to go through the process and work out what we want to achieve and then find a way to equip ourselves and at the same time, then, as leaders, we've also got to work out what we can be doing to enable and empower people to do what they do best. This empowerment of learners is absolutely critical, which is the voice and agency piece that you were talking about earlier. Together, we've got to design solutions. We've got to learn together from the experience of what we're doing and evolve the model over time rather than create a... a a one-size-fits-all, allegedly perfect system and then try and make people fit that system when they don't. And along the way, we've got to partner with families. There it is. That's, that's, that's the model for continuous learning that, we, that we've put together, um, which is our best guess. What I'm really looking forward to, Adriano, is the opportunity to talk with game changers from around the world about what they're doing and what models they're putting in place and what they have been putting in place before, during and, well, hopefully after the pandemic that we're living through at the moment. You know, during this kind of global pandemic, Phil, I've been incredibly inspired and encouraged by the actions of so many educators and learning communities to rethink what education, what schooling and what learning can be and what it should be. And I suppose in this particular kind of prologue for series two, my emphasis in this conversation with you today has been around the obvious. Hence why I started with the context of our times. It's it's really easy for us to continue to do what we've always done because so much of it works. There's no doubt about it. And I don't want to labour that too much. uh, And and, and I don't want to labour too much about the contribution and the significant contribution that teachers continue to make in this space. But my point is around what is obvious now and that we can't avoid this any longer. We can't avoid any longer that the state of play has changed, that the world that these young people are currently in and the world that they are going to inherit is is markedly different to the one that you and I had when we were their age, when their parents were their age, when the teachers were their age. It has changed dramatically. I can't predict what the future is going to look like there is a lot more intelligent people out there than me who are actually attempting to do that. Hence why when we turn to publications that outline what a workforce of 2030 is going to really look like, we need to think about how we can help young people to acquire knowledge that takes them beyond their experience. One that enables them to lead rich and fulfilling and productive lives. Only a more holistic approach to schooling can achieve this success, and that's my belief. With the ultimate goal, a generation of healthier, happier young people that can thrive in this new tomorrow. And that's my provocation uh, for Series 2 in many ways around learning. Well, let's hold that provocation and let's test it out over the next eight conversations and see where we get to. And let's see what conclusions we can draw from the game changes in the field. You're looking forward to it, Adriano? Yes. Uh, so before we do finish up, so 
very soon we're going to launch series two, Phil, and, and that podcast series is going to feature some really uh, dynamic game changers. Uh, people who uh, have allowed us to kind of explore the opportunities of models of learning and doing schooling differently. I'm very much looking forward to it as well because, you know, we're very fortunate that we've had a dialogue with some of the bravest school leaders and educators that are prepared to move beyond what's safe, who are prepared to move beyond what's comfortable and who are open to the possibility of different and, and open to embracing this kind of conscious truth about what the world is really like today. So, you know, for my feel, we're at a bit of a crossroads and we just can't sit back and wait for the evolution to happen to us anymore. And I'm glad that we're, we're talking with eight dynamic individuals who are creating change. They don't see change as, as doing nothing. They see it as a verb. And that they are driving transformation in their kind of K to 12 education systems where leading the change is taking place across their schools. And they are imagining a path forward to a future that most of us can't see. I can't wait. Let's go. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.